you know, we're doing four sessions over four months, so each session builds on from the last. Um, but generally, the first two and the second two could be a set. You know, so the first two, the first one was about do you want to be free, and was about getting clear about what freedom is, and and essentially when we when we're talking about freedom, spiritual freedom, we're talking about coming to a place where you're not reactive to your mind anymore. Okay, so, you know, normally everything that comes up grabs you, and meditation is when you stop, and the stuff keeps coming, but you're no longer getting grabbed. And so you just practice not getting grabbed, I like to say. You're practicing being unhookable. How many people get hooked on things in their mind, right? So, so you get hooked, so what does that mean? It comes by, grabs your attention, and your attention grabs it. It doesn't feel that way though, does it? It feels like it's grabbing you. What you learn in meditation is it can't grab you because there's nothing in there that has a grabber, right? So only you grab it. It feels like it's grabbing you because the habit of grabbing it is so strong. It's just like, it's just like it feels, I was a smoker at one time, it feels like it takes a lot of energy not to smoke a cigarette when you've got a habit of smoking. Now, of course, objectively speaking, I'm not smoking right now. It doesn't take any effort at all, right? But it feels like it takes effort because emotional, the emotional momentum towards smoking is so strong. It's like you have to make an effort to stop. So in the same way, it feels like you're getting grabbed by your thoughts and, and captured by them and hooked. That's why we say hooked. It's actually a bad term to use because it makes you a victim. I'm getting hooked. You're not getting hooked. You're hooking. It's kind of like you've got a grappling rod and you hook it onto something and then you go, oh, I'm hooked. No, you're not hooked, you're hooked. <laughs> so you want to get to the place where you're unhookable, which means no matter what happens, you can just choose to relax. And then you can choose to respond to certain thoughts or not. Right? That's, that's what freedom means. You get to choose. You get to say, oh, this is an anger I'm not going to respond to. This is an anger I am going to respond to. This is a response I'm not going to have again. This is, this is how I'm now going to respond to the same situation. So you have more freedom of choice about how you behave and how you act. So that was the first class. And meditation is just practice and being unhookable. In the second class, we talked about what does it mean, what does it take to commit to living that way. right? And, and then we have to confront the various parts of us that may not want to make the effort to be that unhooked. But we also made it clear that if one wants to live a life that's free in that way, you could. You just decide. It's really a choice. Okay, so that was the first two classes, and as I said, those are kind of a set. So those are about spiritual freedom, what it is, whether you want it or not, and what it takes to live it. Um, so the next two classes are sort of a set, and they have more to do with the bigger reasons why we would want to do that. So there's, there's some reasons which are just basically, honestly, it's much more pleasant, right? So being unhookable is a lot more pleasant than getting hooked, like... Uh, a leaf in the wind every time something happens. It grabs you and drags you around. So it's more pleasant. That's a good reason to do it. Also, over time, your, your life will get better and better and better because you'll be making more and more conscious choices. Right? The way our life gets messed up is we react. I think I used that example. You, know, you get upset with your boss, then you say, I quit. Then you walk out the door, and then you go, oh, shoot, I quit my job. That sucks. Now i got to find a new job. And then that's, remember, I think I was describing, that's called karma, right? So karma is an action that then requires more action to clean up. So we, our lives tend to a greater degree than, than we maybe even realize to be created by karma, which means they're created by actions that need to be taken to clean up other actions. And you can see, like, if you do that once, okay, not so big a deal. You quit one job, whatever, you find another job. But if you do that, and then you do something else, and after, after, like, a fairly short life, you've created so much karma, which means you've made so many choices that are continuing to require more choices to clean them up, that your whole life is about cleaning up your karma, even though you don't realize it. It's mostly unconscious. You know, it's, it's not like we have a tracker that tracks karma. 
we just end up in a life that we feel a little bit victimized by. Feel like, oh, I'm kind of suffocated by my life and I don't know why. And we have a sense that there's a way to escape it, but we don't know how. So the second good reason for wanting to be free is that over time your life will get much, much better. But there's, there's another dimension to growth. So there's one dimension of growth which has to do with becoming free. It means practicing meditation. As I said earlier, we're practicing being unhookable, so we're just resting. No matter what happens, we don't let it grab us. We don't grab onto it. We just let it go by, and we get better and better at doing that. And the goal is to essentially develop the conscious ability to be free, to be unhookable. And in terms of spiritual growth, that's as far as you can go on your own steam. Right? That's, that's as far as you can take this through an act of... There's nothing else you can do besides liberating yourself from reactivity to the mind. Because then you're free, and that's all you can do. But that's not all that happens. That's just all that you can do. So at that point, you're surrendered. right? So the goal of, of meditation is to become surrendered, which means you give up control, you're free, you're not getting hooked, and you're not trying to do anything anymore. You're just being free in your practice. You're just being available. And what you discover is if you're that free and available, and you're not doing anything, that there's a natural, you know, you could use any direction you want, but we'll just pick upward. There's a natural kind of buoyancy to the spirit that it will naturally start to rise upward if you're not doing something to keep it down, right? So the classic, one of the classic enlightenment metaphors, which actually doesn't use up, it uses a river. So, so the idea is when you let go in meditation, you find, oh, life is a river, it will carry you, right? So one of the classical metaphors is our mental reactivity is like us holding on to weeds on the side of the river and because we're holding on to reeds, we're stuck. We don't move. But if we let go of the reeds, then we find ourselves moving. That movement isn't something you can do. It's something that happens when you stop doing anything else. So one of the things that can get in the way of our spiritual growth is if, if we keep working too hard past the point of freedom. Right? So I used to have a friend who was a... Uh, we were in business together for a while, and he, he was kind of a salesman. He had a saying which he used to say all the time, but honestly, he didn't really follow his own advice, but he did say it all the time. He would say, don't talk past the sale. Because you know, when you're talking to someone, you have to be aware of the point where they're ready to buy, and then you stop talking and let them buy. But you know, he would say, there's all kinds of salesmen. They just keep talking, blah, 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 blah. And they talk so far past the sale, a person says, forget it. You know, they, you actually talked them out of it instead of talking them into it. Now, he used to do that all the time, actually, but that's a whole other story. But this is the same way. It's like you practice to the point of freedom, and then you just, then there's, there's nothing else you can do. You just rest in that. So, Ramana Maharshi, the Indian mystic of the 20th century, he talked about levels of practice, attainment, and realization. So, I think some people are just natural born meditators. That was definitely not me. I struggled a lot for years. Some people are more natural. I just sit, who knows, it's probably some past lifetime karmic thing. You know, they've done a lot of work, so they just sit and it's easy. But one way to think about whether it's difficult or it's easy is this distinction between practice and attainment. Practice is when your habit is to get hooked. And so your practice the practice of, of being unhookable is difficult, like I said, because you're fighting against a habit all the time, and right? Difficult in meditation usually means you get hooked, and you get hooked, and you get hooked. It gets exhausting, right? It's really difficult to meditate that way, and it's exhausting, and you kind of feel like, well, why am I doing this? this is, I could just watch a movie, and I'll be much less tired afterwards, right? So, so, but that's when you're in a mode, it's just practice. 
So you have to keep practicing breaking that habit. And who knows how long it's going to take? It doesn't really matter. You're just going to do it anyway. So you just do it and do it and do it. But at some point, after you've done it long enough, it'll become your habit to not get hooked. Right? It'll, you'll, you'll develop a different habit. Just like, like I used to smoke, and it was very difficult to stop smoking for f a few years. But at this point, I would find it very difficult to smoke. I don't have that habit anymore. I don't like the idea. I never even, you know, there, was, there were years where, like if I was in certain circumstances, the urge to smoke would return. But that was, you know, hasn't happened for 20 years. So it would now take effort in the other direction. You know, you'd have to kind of force me to smoke, and I'd have to kind of force it to my lips, and ugh, I probably wouldn't like it. So the same thing can happen in meditation, where your new habit is, as soon as you sit, I mean, I can feel this in myself, as soon as I sit in the meditation posture, I automatically go into a kind of let go. It just happens. I don't have to even think about, it's almost like a body memory. And then it's easy, you just sit. And that's as far as you can go on your own. That's what you can do, is you can break the habit of reactivity, and you can come to the place where you can easily rest. So you've moved from practice, which is effortful, to attainment, which is effortless. And then you just sit. There's nothing else you can do. When you are in that place of attainment, or even if you're in the place of, re of practice, but you're doing it, you know, and you're actually resting, uh, even if it's taking effort, something else can happen, and that's what today's class is about, which is it's the evolution of consciousness. Your consciousness changes, right? In some ways, this is the most important of the... The first two classes are important in terms of meditation. This one is really the whole point. And the last one is kind of a secret that makes it all much more possible. So that's how this works. And so, but it's interesting to think about what we mean by higher consciousness. Because there's lots of different ways to think about it. One of the ways that I find the most useful was developed by someone named David Hawkins. You know, there's lots of different ways of thinking about consciousness. I like his. It's simple, it's easy, and it makes sense to me. There's other good ones as well. So in the Hawkins scale, I said I, I like his. It's not the only one. But I mean, I think generally all the scales are going to move more or less from something like this to something like this. So in the Hawkins scale, the very lowest level you can, might be able to guess. So this represents despair. Despair is sort of the lowest level of consciousness in his system. Right? Despair is when you've given up all hope. There's very little possible in despair for a human being. And, I mean, we've probably all experienced some degree of despair. We've all known people who've experienced some degree of despair. And when you're in despair, you have no hope. And because you have no hope, you, know, you don't have any access to wisdom or insight or anything else. It's just hopeless. Everything's hopeless. And so one way to think about levels of consciousness, it has to do with how much energy is available. In despair, there's no energy. Right? If you are really hopeless, you, like, it's the worst. You're just done. And then you move up you know, through... You know, his, his system is fascinating. We won't go into it too much. But you know, even when you get into like shame, it's higher than despair. Because shame, at least you can feel embarrassed that you're not good. In despair, you're just convinced you're not. You know? And so in shame, it's got a little bit more energy. At least you can like hide. <laughs> and then you get to fear, which has more energy, because then you really want to hide. And you get to anger, is even more energy, because then you want to fight. And then you get to what he calls pride. And all of those levels, from despair to pride, are considered his levels of ego, which basically means if, if you're in those consciousnesses, it's all about you. Right? Someone in despair, it's all about them. Mm -hmm. There is no room for anybody else. And even if you're in pride, pride is like the highest level of ego. This is like, I am so great. And you can function really well at pride, right? Some people can be very prideful and incredibly competent and even, even well-loved. 
But it's all about them. You realize pretty quickly, this has nothing to do with anybody else, right? This is, and they're willing to be magnanimous and, and, and giving and generous as long as they're getting something back. As soon as they're not getting back, they don't care anymore. So up until that level of pride, there's no capacity to care about something other than yourself. And the next level above pride is courage. And courage is the first level of consciousness where you can now care about something else more than you care about yourself. So you've made a big flip in, in consciousness. So now all of a sudden, you might care about a person. You might be a mother who cares about their children more than she cares about herself. And so she's, literally, she's actually willing to extend herself. You, know, you might be a soldier who cares about an ideal more than they care about their own life. Or a firefighter. These are occupations that require an enormous amount of courage. You have to be able to put something ahead of your own self-interest, which is great. But it's the lowest level beyond ego. It's the first level above ego because there's still a kind of fight involved. It's not the highest level. So then as you go higher, you get to incredible, you know, you get to things like joy and love. And at some point you come to a little series, neutrality. And then above neutrality is willingness. So neutrality is what we're practicing. Neutrality and willingness, as I see it, are what we're practicing in meditation. That means we're unhookable, which means we don't have any, we're neutral. No matter what arises, it's okay with us. So we're practicing, we're sitting in neutrality and willingness. Willingness means we're willing for this to go anywhere. We're not just neutral about what's happening. We're also willing to be taken wherever it goes. If this is going to go this way, I'm going that way. If this is going to go this way, I'm going that way. I'm willing. I'm not, I've given up my agenda, and I'm willing. That's what I was saying earlier, is, is as far as you can go through your own effort. You can effortfully, you can do the work of practice to get to the place of being neutral and willing, right? Which is, you know, neutral and willing are not great terms. I would prefer something like open and receptive, but, you know, that sounds better. Mm -hmm. But basically, it means the same thing, right? You're just open and receptive. Actually, my favorite word for that state is available. This is when you become available. Because before that, you're not available. You're busy with your agenda. And this is what I, I, I like to say. The divine is looking for people who are available. It's like scanning the planet. Anybody available? I got plans for this planet. Oh, everybody's busy, right? We're all busy, 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 busy making money, busy doing this, busy cleaning up our karma. Everybody's busy cleaning up their karma. Busy, busy, busy. Oh, there's some spiritual people. Maybe they're available. Oh, nope, they're busy with their spiritual practice. Too busy, too busy for me. You know, that's the irony of spiritual practice. You can get so busy with your spiritual practice that you're not available for God, which was the whole point. But at some point, if you're actually practicing neutrality, which means what? The big sacrifice is you have to give up wanting anything. You have to give up wanting anything besides what is. So whatever is, is, is okay with you. You don't want anything more. So this is why Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, would say we have all these fantasies higher consciousness of these mystical realms, which there are mystical realms. It's not that there aren't mystical realms. But the, our ideas about them are just fantasies that keep us stuck. Stuck in what? Stuck in being busy, because we're being busy trying to attain our fantasy. So then when the divine comes by, oh, too busy, busy with their mystical fantasies, you know, so let's look for someone. And then the person who's not busy is the person who's just sitting there not doing anything. That's the definition of not busy. You're not doing anything. You're just there. And you're perfectly ready, willing, open, receptive, and available for whatever's next. Then the divine goes, aha, someone's available. And as soon as you're available, believe me, she finds you quick. It's not like, you know, she's omnipotent. So she doesn't have to, like, scan each person individually. She's looking at everybody all the time and just waiting for the moment. So as soon as there's availability... The, in, the insight, the wisdom, everything that you talked about is immediately available, right? Just, the path just opens, and that's the end. So if you're not getting that kind of wisdom and insight, you, you, I would suggest you question how available you are or not.
This is my ongoing personal inquiry is, am I still available, right? Because to me, I think it's a never-ending self-inquiry because, of course, the door opens up, something amazing becomes available, you step into it, there's always the possibility that you're now going to get busy with that and you're not going to be available for the next door. So if your goal is to continue to pass through the doors to the highest possibilities you can poss- that you can attain, then you need to keep yourself from getting stuck in any next thing. Doesn't mean that you don't wholeheartedly engage with it, but you're also available for more. You know, we want to we live in a way that we're always available for more. We never, we're never hooked, right? It's another way of getting hooked. We're never hooked on, on the current manifestation of the divine. We're always waiting for her next offering. You know, that's, that's, how, we're, that's how we're oriented. So we're at willingness, and then there's levels higher than willingness. So that's when you get into more like mystical realms, and you start to get into, it says, in his system, and I, like I said, I like this system, he talks about willingness is the, is the doorway to enlightenment, right? And then that, it, it, the reason I like his system is because it matches up with Ramana Maharshi, which is the system that I was trained in, where he would say that attainment, this place where sitting and being unhookable is as far as you can go. And his, his disciples would ask him, well, if you get to that place of being totally available, you know, and after that there's all these levels of enlightenment in the Hindu system as well, he said, why doesn't everybody who gets to that place of being available go all the way? Because what would stop you? Since you're totally available, you might as well just do it. And then Ramana would say, well, that's because beyond that point, there is no possibility for effort because there's no one left to make effort. So that's when you just have given up the effortful self. You're just available. More effort doesn't help at that point. At that point, it really is a matter of grace and just being open. And we don't know what our karma is. You know, in the Hindu system, that would mean that you don't know what your karma is from this lifetime or from past lifetimes. <clears throat> and, and so therefore, you don't know how quickly or not you'll move through those higher levels. But at that point, it's not... You, you know, I like to think of it as that's where you enter spiritual growth. Before then, you're doing practice, and then you're... you're developing a certain attainment. And after that, you're available, and what you're available for is spiritual growth. And growth isn't something you do. Growth is something that happens. So if you have a flower in a garden, you don't pull on it to make it grow. right? You just nurture it. And the nurturing, in this case, means the unhookable state. That's giving it all the, everything it needs to grow, and then it will just grow. And who knows why you plant two seeds and one flower grows this high and one grows that high? Nobody knows. How, how can two people sit in perfect availability and willingness and one goes this high and one goes that high? Nobody knows. It's all karma. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant how, how far you go because from a personal point of view, you're already free because you're available. You don't have any problems left. And then... What will happen will happen. You just let go. You just give up. Just to finish, after willingness, you get this levels of enlightenment and realization. Um, and you know, at the very top is kind of full unity, oneness with all consciousness is the kind of highest. So I want you to think, if we say that scale is 1 to 10, and we say courage is 200, everything below 200 is like all the yucky stuff, which is all about you. And then 200 to like 600, or, or 2 to 6 is everything that you can, that's, that's going up to availability. And then 6 to 10 is levels of mystical awareness. I want you to first think about, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1, remember, is despair. What's the lowest consciousness you've ever experienced in life? And, and what's the highest consciousness you've ever experienced in life? I mean, I, I have experienced some level of despair. I mean, it's always hard to compare your level of despair to somebody. But I've experienced a pretty severe level of despair where I had a question about whether life was worth living, right? It wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was 
quite suicidal, but I was definitely questioning whether this was worth it. Right? So that's probably a high level of despair compared to, you know, being actually suicidal. But, you know, I know, like I saw what that road is. I said, okay, this is the road. This is the one that leads to the end, me ending my life. Right? All I got to do is keep going down this way. So it was, I got scared. I saw that in me. And I thought, okay, this is, this, is the, this is that road. I need to get off this road. Which I did. And... I've experienced very high states of consciousness, you know, whether they're tens or not, who knows, I'm assuming they're not, but a good seven or eight at least at times. So I want you to think about what's the range of consciousness that you've experienced. And so what you're determining is the lowest you've been and the highest you've been. And since the lowest is depressing, we're going to just forget about that one for the moment, and we're just going to think about the highest. So the highest is like, so when you had that experience, it was a kind of peak experience, right? This is the term, peak experience. And one of the things that can happen in, in, one of the ways that our spiritual growth occurs is we, we have higher and higher peak experiences, Right, so at the beginning you don't have much, you didn't have very much peak experience, and then you started doing your practice. Then eventually you got to some degree of being able to rest and availability, and because you're available, you started to have experiences, and they, you know, every experience kind of goes up, goes up, goes up. But then what happens after you have the experience? Almost every case that I've ever heard of where there's been some peak experience that stuck. It was a fairly random event, not one, you know, not one cultivated through practice. So, you know, it was uh, Eckhart Tolle being homeless on a park bench, you know, or Ramana Maharshi afraid he was going to die and just laying down to see what it was going to feel like. You know, it wasn't, wasn't like he was aspiring for higher consciousness and practicing every day. It's, these things occasionally do just happen, evidently. Um, but that's like the lottery ticket version of spiritual growth, you know. And you could do that if you want. It's like saying, what's, what's, your, what's your career? Oh, I buy lottery tickets. Now, if someone says to you their career is buying lottery tickets, you're going to think, you know, that's probably not a great plan. You know, it does work for some people, but the odds aren't in your favor. So the same thing's true of, like, spiritual experiences that stick. The odds are not in your favor. Luckily, there's something else that's, that's more of a sure bet, which is, practicing to the point of availability. And then you'll keep having higher and higher peak experiences. But what happens? Peak experiences go away. Right? They don't last forever. They last a long time sometimes. I've had at least one incredible peak experience that lasted for about six months. That was pretty good. That was a good run, as they would say. Um, But that was... That was unusual. Most of my, and then I've had some that have lasted for a few days, but most of them tend to last for a few hours, you know. And during those few hours, you know, you've got access to all kinds of insight and wisdom, and everything's fine. And in those few hours, you realize that everything was already fine before this, and everything will be fine when it's gone. So when you're in the peak experience, you're not worried about it going away. It's like, because you're like, well, this can't go away. This is. This isn't something that can go away. This is the part of the peak experience. Is this is reality. This is the way it is. Unfortunately, when it goes away, the consciousness that comes back doesn't know that that consciousness is already still the case, which it is. This is what I'm teaching all the time. I'm already saying, you're already awake. Everything's already fine. Nothing really matters. You don't even need to be here. Why don't you go home? That kind of thing. But it doesn't really... That is fun, but it doesn't really help anybody because the consciousness we tend to be in isn't comforted by the fact that those peak experiences, with the truth that they reveal is, is true anyway, whether we happen to be experiencing it or not. You know, and I've talked about it in terms of the sun, you know, where spiritually, like our peak experiences are being outside on a beautiful sunny day, and we're like, yay, the sun is out, the sun is great, but then it gets cloudy, oh no, there's no sun, but someone says, no, no, the sun's still there, it's just behind the clouds. But to that person, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't, the fact that it's behind the clouds, as far as I'm concerned, means it's not here. Because you know? <laughs> I only believe it when I see it. 
right? This is the doubting Thomas kind of consciousness. You know, show me. So we have our peak experiences. Oh my God, I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to let go of anything that's still in you that's hoping for a peak experience that sticks. You just like let that one go. If you can really let it go, you'll save yourself all kinds of time. Okay, good job. Because what that leads to is the never-ending hunt for more spiritual experience. This is, people get totally stuck in that because they want a spiritual experience that sticks, so they just keep pursuing more and more. I mean, I know because I did that for 20 years to an extreme degree, pursued spiritual experiences and had an enormous number of them, you know, often bigger than anything I ever imagined, and they all went away. And as soon as they were gone, my conclusion was, ah, lost it, got to get it again. More retreats, more practice, more this, more that. 20 years you could spend doing that. And what happens in the end? One day you sit down and go, oh, I'm sick of this, right? I'm sick of chasing experiences. But as soon as you get sick of it, then you give up, you realize it's all still there. It really was all there. It really is all here. There's nothing missing. And then you go, oh, I didn't need to do all that. This is the last hurdle, I think. It was for me, at least. It's the last hurdle on, the, on that particular path of pursuing spiritual experience is you have to be willing to admit to yourself that, that none of it was actually necessary. So even though you spent 20 years of your life, that's a long time. Uh, I, I started this, I mean, I really spent more than that, but really, I did nothing but chase spiritual experience from the time I was 29 until I was 49, 48. That's a big hunk of life, right? And that's all I was doing. And I was just earning money, to, to do more practice. That was just my whole life. I didn't, nothing else really mattered. So then you get to a place where you have to admit that actually none of it was necessary because all you realized is that everything's already okay. And it was already okay before you started. So from one point of view, so then there's a temptation to go, oh my God, I wasted 20 years chasing after experiences that ultimately don't matter. But, you know, that's a little simplistic also, because whatever. It's, I just Karmically, evidently, I needed 20 years to be convinced. And hopefully, part of the fruit of, of that 20 years is that my confidence in what's already here will help you have confidence in what's already here, so you enough to spend 20 years doing practice. Because then you could spend 20 years doing something more important than practicing. Um, or at least more valuable to the world. Okay, so we don't, we're, we're looking through this kind of peak experience view where we think there's going to be some peak experience that sticks. So the way I teach, I, I think there's a much more attainable goal, which I call shifting your set point, right? Because we have peak experiences. Like all day long, we have different experiences in consciousness, right? You, you know, you have a you have an argument with your spouse, or you have a bad day at work, and you know, consciousness tends to drop. How many people have had a job in a workplace where you left because you you knew the the kind of consciousness or the atmosphere of that workplace was toxic, right? So, so what happens? You get into a workplace like that, and you're in a field. You're in a consciousness field that's created by the people around you, which usually is, is created by who's ever in charge. And you can feel like I walk in the door, and it's like, whoa, my consciousness goes, Vroom. and there's nothing really you can do about it, because we're all wedded. This is why, hopefully, you like to come to this class, because when you're in here, and we're all thinking about these things, you feel the opposite. You feel like, oh, my consciousness gets lifted up in this atmosphere. Uh, so we're always in some kind of consciousness, some kind of atmosphere that partly depends on the people we're with. So if you're in some terrible environment, eventually you want to leave because you're like, oh my God, this is killing me. This is, this is not working. And 
how many of you have seen this? You, you end up in that environment. I, like, I know this. This is another thing I had to deal with. And you see yourself doing things that you don't like, right? Because, because you're sinking to that level of consciousness, right? So I used to work in a group home for adjudicated teens, which, you know, it wasn't that it was a bad I mean, the people that worked there were great, I think. I mean, I was one of them. I hope I was great. I don't know. But I, you know, everyone was well-meaning, but it's a very difficult environment because of the kind of issues that you're dealing with all the time. And after six years of that, you know, there was one day when one of the kids, you know, they get you. They, they find you a little button. You're, you're like, you know, I can drive you crazy button, and they just keep hitting it. Dink, dink, dink. Dink, and then they start doing it faster. Ding, 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 ding. So that was happening, and you know, I generally I was very zen about it. You know, and I could kind of take it. It's like, okay, you'll get sick of this eventually. But this day, they were in front of me. I can't remember what they were saying, but they were really bugging me, and I felt my arm go up like I was going to backhand them. And I said, okay, this is it. I'm done. Right? I've like, whatever is the point you've reached where you can't handle this anymore, I had reached it, so I quit right away. I said, I, I, think, it's, I think I've had enough. You know, six years is a pretty good run there, too. But that's what, what happens. You know, we're not independent of the consciousness around us. We may be stronger, so we may be able to survive in a certain consciousness better than other people or longer than other people, but we're never completely separate. You know, if you're in a war zone, or the, I like to think of extreme examples. Like, I sometimes think about if you're in the middle of a prison riot, you're not going to be all Zen. Who can meditate in a prison riot? You can't, right? It's gonna, the energy is going to necessitate that you just run for your life and try and figure something out. So, so another way that we elevate consciousness is we make choices to create a life that exists in higher levels of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So one thing we do is we, we pursue peak experiences. Not so they stick, but so we keep extending our range of what we can experience. But then we also need to arrange a life which is supportive of higher consciousness. I don't care how much practice you do, if you live in a life that's toxic, I mean, it might help you cope, maybe, but to be honest, it's kind of like a drop in the bucket, you know? A daily practice of even an hour a day in a toxic life is like throwing a tennis ball at a pickup truck and thinking it's going to stop it, you know? There's too much momentum. So at some point, if you start to get serious about wanting to live higher consciousness, you're going to have to start thinking about what kind of life is going to support that consciousness. And the third way that I want to talk about the elevation of consciousness has to do with what I call the set point, which is much more important. The set point in consciousness, or what I would call your rest consciousness, is much more important than peak experiences. So your rest consciousness is, where do you, where does, where do you go in consciousness when you're not engaged with something else? Right? Because things pull you. So if you're in this class, for instance, hopefully, you're getting invited, pulled into higher consciousness. You're thinking about higher things. You're thinking about higher possibilities. So you feel your spirit uplifted, hopefully. If you're in the group home and the, the kids are fighting, I mean, oh my god. I've got great stories about group homes. Like, total riots in, in overnight. I had to stay overnight, and then it just turned into a riot in the morning. And I was just taking the little kids and throwing them out the door and saying, run for your life. <laughs> Because it was just a brawl of like 15 kids, and I just was trying to save the little ones. <laughs> um, but you know, if you're in that situation, that's going to pull you into a different, believe me, I was screaming my head off. And uh, So circumstances are going to draw your consciousness into different places. But when you're not being drawn, when you're just on your own sitting, where do you go? Think about it. Where do you go? Do you go into worry, fear, anxiety? Do you go into peace, calm? Do you go into bliss, joy? Right? What's, where does your awareness tend to rest 
when it's not getting drawn into something else. And you can see like where you, you know, we often, you know, because of our culture, we tend to measure our kind of spiritual growth by our peak experiences, which is not a really useful measure because anybody can have a peak experience at any place at any time. It can be almost random. Much better to think about it in terms of your set point, right? Because like you said, you still have ups and downs, right? But the ups and downs are going to be around the set point. So if your set point's down here, you're still going to have ups and downs, but the ups aren't going to be so high, and the downs are going to be pretty down. But if you move your set point up here and you start having ups and downs, then you know, you're just, it's the range, you know, where is the range is, is uh, you know, I haven't experienced anything like despair for a long time, um, you know, and I'm humble enough, I hope, to re recognize that that's no guarantee we won't experience despair tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be overconfident about it because I've been there before too, where you think it's over and then you realize it's not over. And then if you think it's over and then it happens again, it's worse. Because then you, not only do you have the despair you're feeling, but you have the sense of failure or whatever comes with the, I thought I was beyond this. And then at some point you go, oh, I guess I'm never beyond anything. You know, anything's always possible because who knows. So the, the thing I really want to you to leave today with is this idea that where to put your attention is on your set point. You know, where is it? And what you're going to tend to find is that when you're meditating in the way that we've been meditating in this class, where we practice what I call the practice of no problem, which means you close your eyes and you just don't make a problem out of anything that happens. You just let everything be as it is. If you really do that, and of course that's the trick, is actually doing it without trying to manipulate or control what's going on. If you really give up control and just let everything be as it is, you're going to tend to settle into your set point, right? Because you're not reaching out for anything. So how many people have a set point that is more in the domain of worry and self-concern? Like that you, that, that was definitely my set point um, for a long time. So when I'm not doing something else, I tend to get into, oh, I don't think I'm good enough or something's wrong. I don't think this is working. I might lose this job or whatever it is, right? I think that's pretty typical of people. And, you know, I think that's kind of like probably the norm, the average is we're resting in, you know, some degree, not necessarily extreme, but some degree of fear, worry, and self-concern. Right? This is why anxiety is such a huge problem in society, because everybody's anxious. What does anxious mean? It means that we are resting in some degree of fear, worry, and self-concern. Right? Because that's the whole point about anxiety. It's, anxiety isn't, isn't fears about real things as much as anxiety is a state of being fearful before anything else happens. You're already anxious. You know, you're sort of pre, you've primed the pump for anxiety because, you know, that's a, that's a, to some part of you, that's a survival strategy. Things, oh, I'll be ready for, be, I'll be pre-anxious. That way when something happens to make me anxious, I'll all be ready for it. It's not the kind of ready we're talking about. <laughs> that's, uh, it doesn't really help, as I'm sure we've all figured out by now. So that's often our set point. So that means when you start meditating, if you really let go, you'll tend to land in some degree of fear, worry, and self-concern. Now it'll be meditation, so the, the form it comes in is, I don't think I'm doing this right, I don't think this is going to work, that kind of uh, thought process around the practice. Now, the antidote to that is you don't, don't make a problem out of that either, you just let that happen. Right? So if you really, if you let go of all problems, you just let everything be as it is, yes, you'll probably move into your set point. But if you don't make a problem out of your set point, if you just, okay, this is it. I kind of do rest and fear, worry, and self-concern all day, so no surprise, that's where I find myself in meditation. It would be really nice if I meditated in bliss, but, you know, and that may happen occasionally. Uh, but 
it's not necessarily going to be the norm. So, but if you don't make a problem out of it, and you're just like, okay, this is just what it is, then you're doing two things. One, you're practicing being available. You're practicing being unhookable. And because you're available, you'll start to rise in consciousness. The fear, worry, and self-concern will start to dissolve, and then you'll start entering into higher places. Eventually, you know, you'll start to settle into just a calm, peaceful ease of being. That's kind of the feeling of neutrality and, will and willingness. And then beyond that. So when you're meditating, it's more useful to take a kind of long-term approach. Meditation is not going to help you today. In some relative way, it'll help you today. Most, most people who meditate will say, if I don't meditate, I have a bad day. That's, that's kind of true. But the real benefit happens over time. And if, you know, if there was one thing that I could tell meditators and everyone would believe me, then what I would tell them is, keep going. Just don't conclude that it's not working and quit. Just keep going. And if they said, how long? I'd say 10 years. Go for 10 years, and then you can decide to quit. Because then you're really giving yourself a chance, you know? And, and people think, well, 10 years? You know, what are you really asking? I'm saying, what, half hour a day for 10 years. OK, it's a lot. But it's not insurmountable. And if your life was going to end up being dramatically better, wouldn't it be worth it? It doesn't even have to cost you anything. It's completely free. It costs you just a half hour a day of just not making a problem out of anything. And you just do it for 10 years, that's it. And then at the end of 10 years, you know, like you were saying, you look and go, oh, I used to be down here, and now I'm up here. Now, if someone were to ask you if daily practice for that many years was worth it, what would you say? OK, so you'll never meet someone who's done a daily meditation practice for 10, 15, or 20 years that doesn't say it was worth it. So that's a good indicator that it's worth it, right? You never meet someone who goes, oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, I could have been doing something else for that half hour a day. Um, so I just want to advocate for persistence. Why? Because I really want people to experience the benefit of living a life from higher consciousness, which is what today is. It's a completely different ballgame, right? It's not the same game. So if you're living a life from lower consciousness, then life is basically a matter of struggle and survival, right? Because you're in a kind of consciousness that, that involves constant fight. And because you're in that consciousness, your choices tend to create a world around you that you end up having to struggle with and fight against. If you are consistent with this, you enter into a consciousness which is easy, in which you, doesn't mean everything works out, doesn't mean everything goes your way, but it means even when it doesn't go your way, it's okay. You can handle it. You just move through it. You don't react, you don't freak out, you don't make bad choices, you know, because things aren't going your way. You just move through it, because you know you can handle it. Why? Because in that consciousness, you know that. It's okay. And then you get through the other side, and then, and then possibilities open up, and you make good choices. And then, I don't know if I've told you this yet. I have a personal rule for myself. I don't make any big life choices unless I feel like I'm in a high level of consciousness. Right? So I never make important choices when I feel like I'm consumed by anger or jealousy or something else. But if I feel like I'm bursting with willingness and joy and this looks good, then I do it. And my other rule is when I make a decision in higher consciousness, I follow through on it even if later I'm in lower consciousness and I think it's a bad idea. Right? So I, I want my life to be created from higher consciousness, which means that the, the choices I make in higher consciousness are the ones that I want to like adhere to and the ones that 
I would make in lower consciousness the ones I want to ignore. And then you build a different kind of life. And I, I just want that for everybody because I know how amazing it is. And I want it for all of us because I know when we're all doing that together, something different can happen on this planet than what we're currently seeing, right? The, the consequences, the negative consequences that many of us see uh, on this planet fundamentally are a result of the level of consciousness that people are living at. That's the way it works, you know? And if more and more people were living from higher consciousness, the world would change. First, their world, which is good for them, but more importantly, the world as that spread because um, luckily, high, higher consciousness does have a kind of gravitational attraction. You know, there's an attraction to it. There's a lot of cynicism in the world and a lot of disbelief about the possibility of living in that open, unguarded state, right? I, I like to, the analogy I like to use for that is you know, imagine you lived in the Old West, right? In the Old West, at least according to the movies, I don't know what it was actually like, but in the Old West, everybody carried six shooters, right? Imagine being the first person who said, you know what, I think I'm not gonna carry these. I'm just gonna put them down and leave it home today. I'm just gonna go out without my guns. And everyone would go, you can't go out without your gun. Someone will shoot you. No, it's okay, I'm just gonna do it. You know, and then maybe some people see them and they go, hey, maybe I'll leave my guns at home too. And now you go to the West and some people carry guns, but not very many. <laughs> you know, it's not like everybody's got them anymore because there's just a level of trust that develops. But the, that's what it can feel like when you start to surrender to higher consciousness. You feel like, because what keeps us in lower consciousness, because we're defended and we think we need to be defended and we usually have good reasons, historical reasons of traumatic experiences that have convinced us we need to be defended or life's going to get us. Unfortunately, that is the case or has been the case. And opening and living from this open place and creating a life from there is, is going to be what changes that circumstance. So we all have to put down our six shooters and learn to live in trust and harmony with each other and with the world and with life. And that's how our consciousness elevates. <laughs>